This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Happy Tuesday. A little bit warmer of a Tuesday out there. Liking that. <laughs> yes, right. It's getting, uh, well, it feels like there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel there. I'm saying spring's <laughs> on the way, but I know that's a little premature. <laughs> well, in the meantime, we can be listening to good content. Craig, uh, you have a couple good interviews today. I do. The ninth annual Bloody Sunday Forum, um, Ashley, will be held at the University of Mary, and there'll be events January 25th through the 30th. Dr. Michael Taylor is my guest, and he'll recall for us what Bloody Sunday was. It was horrific. And also outline then the events that are open to the public and the schedule for those events which are in Bismarck. But first is a fascinating interview that I had with Dr. Ian McGillcrest. He is world famous. I interviewed him while he was at his home in Scotland, and he'll be speaking tomorrow at NDSU on the topic of the divided brain, the humanities, and AI. Suffice it to say, his comments on the study that he's done on the left brain, you know, the left hemisphere and the Mm -hmm. right hemisphere, whatever you thought you knew. (laughs) Throw it out the window. (laughs) Exactly right. And here's my interview with Dr. McGilchrist. Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Dr. Ian McGilchrist will be speaking on the topic of the divided brain, the humanities, and AI on Wednesday, January 24th from 11 a.m. to noon at room 230 in Minot Hall on the campus of North Dakota State University. And that discussion will also be available via Zoom. The panel will be led by Dr. Michael Robinson. He's a professor of psychology at North Dakota State University and Dr. Todd Pringle, who has a PhD in materials nanotechnology and is also a PhD candidate in psychology at NDSU. But Dr. McGilchrist now, he joins us from Scotland. Welcome, welcome to Main Street. Thanks very much, Craig, delighted. I want to summarize what I perceive your discussion is going to be about and utilize that then as an introduction to talk about this fascinating topic. I believe that you express concern about humanity's engagement in self-destructive behaviors encompassing intellectual, moral, and physical aspects, and that the central argument revolves around the dominance of the value of power aligning with the left and right hemispheres of the brain, which seeks to control and manipulate rather than understand. Am I getting that layman's introduction somewhat correct? Yes, it's fair. But I mean, the point is, it's the left hemisphere, not the left and right. That is the problem here. The left hemisphere has evolved in, in all the species we know to be the one that gets stuff and grabs stuff and manipulates stuff. And that is its raison d'etre. That is what it's there for. And the right hemisphere, meanwhile, is looking out for everything else. So it's kind of important. And I believe that in our society, we have allowed the the rather crude, less intelligent, less imaginative left hemisphere to dominate the picture. And that's one of the reasons we're on a path to destruction, in my view. To the layman, Dr. McGilchrist, who are listening today, what inspired you to explore the topic of brain hemispheres and their cultural impact. You can imagine I was advised not to because uh, (laughs) there was a period (laughs) in the 60s and 70s when people were enthusiastic about this. And then uh, later in the 20th century, piece by piece of research suggested that in fact, both hemispheres involved in everything. And all that really shows us is that we'd answer the question what the difference is wrongly. In other words, it's not true that the left is a little bit boring, but highly dependable, rational, linguistic, and the right hemisphere is a little bit given to going off on a creative thing and not dependable and a bit emotional. 
We've all been told that, Dr. Milgilchrist. Right? I know you have, and I want you all to completely forget it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the point is that having given a wrong answer to the question is not a reason for not trying to give the right answer. And so I've spent 30 years trying to arrive at a conclusion about that. What effectively I've found is that it's to do with these two kinds of attention, which are, you know, of evolutionarily high importance. So in order to get food, you need to, po to pose a kind of targeted, narrow beam attention to some little thing to get it. But to see the rest of the picture, including to see predators while you're getting your lunch, you don't want to become somebody else's, then you need another part of the brain that's doing just the opposite, looking out for the whole picture in a sustained, broad, open, vigilant way. And this gives rise to two kind of worlds. One is one in which we think we understand it all. It's all made up of little bits. We put them together, we make machines, and that's how the world is. But in fact, machines are very, very unusual. Probably the only machines in the cosmos are just right around here. Almost everything else is not mechanical. And we now know that the universe is not a Newtonian mechanism. In fact, mechanisms are no way of trying to understand ourselves, our brains, the world, or what we're doing here. And I think what has happened is that we've gone into a, a state where we no longer value things unless we can exploit them. That's about the only kind of thing we think they're good for. The natural world, a heap of resource. Animals and so on, if we make them extinct, it doesn't really matter as long as we can get rich. Indigenous peoples who could teach us some kind of a wisdom, tough on them, their habitat is going to be mined, logged, blown up, or whatever it is. Um, and we just live in this world in which it's get, get, get. And there's a hell of a lot more to life than that. It, people may be cynical about that, but I'm a psychiatrist, and I can tell you that people are not happier when they've made a lot of money and got a lot of power. They're usually rather stressed, anxious, paranoid people. And I can also tell you, because we've got evidence going back to the, about 100 years, that when we ask people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on, young people, how content they were, how happy they were, how positive they were, they were much more so in the past. So we think we've created progress, but actually what we've created is something really regrettable. We're all unhappier now than we were, despite being much richer. I'm going to ask you perhaps what potential solutions to that issue might be in a moment. But first, is your research universal? Does it apply to all cultures in the world? Is it evolved differently, for instance, here in Western culture versus more remote indigenous peoples? Very much so. You're absolutely right. So, in fact, we're rather unusual, very unusual. Um, although, I think it may be that very grand cultures, when they achieved, when they overreached themselves and became immoderately great, they may have run into the same problems we're running into now. But at the moment, unfortunately, we're exporting our toxic culture to everybody else in the world. Now, I, when I say toxic culture, I, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon of, you know, slagging off what the West has achieved. Western civilization is great. We've achieved many, many wonderful things. But right now, we've gone into a sort of arrogant phase in which we think we know everything, we understand everything, but our understanding is actually very small. And you may know that there's a phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which means the less you understand, the more you think you know it all. 
And that's rather what the <laughs> left hemisphere is like. It knows literally less, is less intelligent than the right hemisphere, which may surprise people, but it is. And at the same time, it thinks it knows everything. I have to ask you something about your research before we continue on that made this layman go, holy smokes. You talk <laughs> about being able to shut off either the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere of the brain and then, then study first. Wow. And second, what did you learn? Well, wow is, is right. Um, in the past, we tended to have to rely on what are called experiments of nature, where somebody had a blow to the head or a stroke or a tumor. Until there was this split brain operation that was pioneered in California at Caltech in the 60s, which was transformative for people with intractable epilepsy. And then we could inquire of one hemisphere at a time. But now we have something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, with which you can enhance or suppress an area of cortex for a period of, say, 20 minutes. And you can see what happens. So wow. absolutely wow. Yeah. And what you find is that there are quite different, I mean, it's putting it a bit rather crudely, but personalities to the two hemispheres. One of them doesn't understand anything that's not completely explicit. So jokes are lost on it. It takes them seriously. Poetry, it doesn't understand at all. Um, myths, music, not interested in. This is the left hemisphere. It is, it is at home reading something like the operating manual for a dishwasher, but it's not too keen on the rest. That's a, a gross exaggeration, but it's just wow. to, to help people see what's going on there. You've got this slightly nerdy, if you like, somewhat autistic kind of left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is actually much more grounded. The left hemisphere gets quickly off into delusions. I'm not the only person who, who has observed this. In fact, most of the delusional syndromes that people may know a little about in psychiatry, such as schizophrenia and so on, but also there are a whole lot of them following head injuries, they practically all involve a damage to the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere has taken over. And it really does. Does it have to do with lessened inhibition? What happens is that if you let the left hemisphere go on its own, there's nothing there to balance it. And the right hemisphere is much more down to earth and much more reliable, contrary to the mythology about the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is quickly angry. It's self-righteous, somewhat narcissistic. Um, it's somewhat immoral. And it, it's just quite different from the world we would like to be acquainted with, in which people understood one another, were kinder to one another, and saw a broader picture. I mean, this is all extremely, anybody who's a neuroscience listening, listening to, scientist listening to this will uh, recognize that I'm giving a very um, sketchy caricature here, but there's truth in it. You have compared your brain to our, our brains, brains in general, to computers. What are your conclusions? Well, yes, I mean, I fight a, a battle against the comparison of our brains with computers because I think it's an easy mistake to make. We have, as I say, we've created machines and we think, therefore, that we can understand everything else by likening it to the machine. And in fact, the only way in which we understand something is by comparing it to something else that we think we know. And the left hemisphere thinks it understands computers because it makes them. But there's a far, far greater uh, complexity to the brain and not just complexity that might be overcome in the course of time. We are not machines. We are not abstract cognitive machines. We have bodies, we have emotions, we have a moral sense, we have imagination, we have intuition, 
we know we're going to die, we suffer, we help one another. This is nothing like what a machine is. And this completely changes what a human life is. And if you like, the left hemisphere's way of thinking is what we have externalized in AI. It's procedural, it's serial, and it's explicit. But the right hemisphere's thinking is none of these things. It's implicit, it's not serial, and it's strictly non-computable. It, it, it can't be computed because there's no nothing there that you can easily go, this is it. This is precisely what we've got. We can then build on get this and so on. It's to do with something coming into focus, which is drawn partly from imagination and partly from previous knowledge. And that is something that cannot be computed. We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Ian McGilchrist. He'll be speaking on the topic of the divided brain, the humanities and AI on Wednesday, January 24th from 11 a.m. to noon at room 230 in Minard Hall on the campus of North Dakota State University. Dr. McGilchrist, how should you and I perceive AI as it's evolving? What should we think about? You know, it would be wrong to dismiss it altogether, but it would also be rather foolish not to realize the potential for harm. I mean, at the very simplest level, interacting more with machines changes us in undesirable ways. So I think not so much that the worry is that machines will become like humans. They can't. But the worry is that humans will become more like machines. And I think I can see that in the way they talk, in the way they think, the language they use, and the things that they attracted to. So that that's one problem. I mean, there just are so many. I gave a speech, the opening speech to the World Forum on AI in Amsterdam about a year ago. I laid out a lot of my worries there. I mean, on a simple level, what are we going to do with people if computers really take over their jobs? But they're not going to. What I have found is that although we've become clever at making computers do some really extraordinary things, like create this kind of zombie that looks like a like a real human being. I mean, of course, it isn't like a real human being, but it may look like one, very clever. On the everyday level, our lives are constantly being degraded by AI. So something that 10 years ago would have taken a five-minute phone call to a real human being now takes a whole morning in which one goes round and round in loops that have not been properly thought through on the internet and degrades my time and my imagination and my life. Everybody is finding this. Everybody I talk to, whatever age, they just find they spend more and more time frustrated trying to negotiate an artificial, not intelligent system, just an information processing system. There's nothing intelligent about it. And that is something that I worry about, especially if it gets writ large. I worry about the ways in which it will make possible a totalitarian control and monitoring by governments uh, that we've never seen the like of before. And it would be very naive to think that all governments are going to be benign or indeed are benign. You know, where do we stop on this? There's so many things I could fill an hour with that worry me about where AI is taking us. How will we know what was real in a court of law? How will we know whether a student has really understood anything at all if they can get a chat GPT to give them a rather banal but reasonable account of an area in whatever it is they're studying? We have no idea where this is going to lead us. Let me ask you this, Dr. McGilchrist, and it goes back to an earlier question I think that I had about different cultures. How does exposure to things like music and art reflect on the workings of our cerebral hemispheres? 
and thus our understanding of the world, and thus are those who appreciate music and art more fully? Do their brains develop differently? It's a good question and an interesting one. For most of us to understand music and appreciate music, we need the right hemisphere and the left contributes relatively little. Certainly for most of us, melody and harmony and even complex rhythms are better understood by the right hemisphere. The only thing the left hemisphere contributes for most of us is simple rhythm. But we know that professionals are atypical. So professional artists, professional composers, professional anything will use their brains in a slightly different way from most of us because they spend more time in a realm of abstract scrutiny of what it is they're doing. They're able to and need to use a more theoretically detached kind of way of engaging as well as the way that their right hemisphere would make possible. So these things that require implicit meaning, I mean, how do you decode a piece of music? You simply can't. I can tell you that it means everything to me, but if you ask me, what does it mean? Of course, I can't say, I can't put it into words. No computer could understand what it is I'm talking about any more than it could understand what I mean if I say, my wife means everything to me. Well, what does she mean? Tell me. I well, no, I, There's kinds of meaning that are not like that. <laughs> and so those things are important. And, and another one is proximity to the natural world. So when we're in the natural world and actually paying attention to it rather than nervously checking our phones, all kinds of things happen to us that are beneficial psychologically, physically, and put us in touch with something that, again, is hard to articulate in language, but incredibly valuable and important. Dr. McGilchrist, earlier I told you I would ask you about your potential solutions. We began this interview by talking about that you express a concern about humanity's engagement in self-destructive behaviors. How can we get better? What's, what's the recommendation yeah. here? Well, the first recommendation is that we actually see what it is that we're doing. Because I think a lot of people don't understand the full picture. They just think, we're doing fine. We're just doing great. And then suddenly somebody tells us, damn, the weather's changing. Or somebody reports the seas are poisoned. Somebody told me they're cutting down forests. It's going to affect the atmosphere. You know, so we think it's just little technical slip-ups. But the important point, it is not. It's about the fact that we don't have the foggiest idea what a human being is, what the natural world is, and how we relate anymore. And this is partly because we've been estranged from our communities, from tradition, from nature, from all the things that used to give us an understanding of the world that was passed down. And instead, we're sitting kind of like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl somewhere in a city, trying to make sense of all this stuff that's going on around us. So I think the first thing to do is to realize what it is we're missing, because when we see what it is we're missing, we are more likely to re, re-import it into our lives. I'm a psychiatrist first and foremost, and I know that I often can tell the first time I meet somebody what it is they need to do. But if I tell them that the first time I meet them, they won't do it. They won't believe me because they would have probably thought of it themselves and started doing it. They need to get to the point where they see it for themselves. So if you're asking me for like the six things we must do before breakfast in order to save this situation, <laughs> you're really repeating the left hemisphere's mistake, which is to think, yeah, a little fix here, a little fix there. But that would be like putting a plaster on a cancer. We need to eradicate this cancer from the root. And the cancer is the way in which we think, this reductionist, materialist way in which we think about ourselves and the world. We are not 
best understood this way. In fact, this is an intellectually far too simple, morally bankrupt and imaginatively sterile way of viewing our situation in the cosmos. You're going to have a group of students listening to your every word on Wednesday. What is it that you want them to take away? Well, I want them above all to understand what I'm saying to you, that we've lost an awful lot. An awful lot of stuff's gone out of our life. But because of the way things are presented to us by big business and the government, we're not aware of what it is we're losing as fast as we're losing. So to become aware of it and to begin to cultivate the very things that might bring it back into the, their lives, but to refocus where it is they think they're going with their lives, with their careers. Where, what are they going to do? Are they just going to go out there and make as much money as possible? Or are they going to try and help bring about good things, beautiful things in the world, true things? Uh, in my lifetime, I've seen all these important values for 2,000 years, goodness, beauty, and truth, which guided um, us. We may not always have been good at following them, but at least they were what we pretended that we needed and what we aimed for. But I've seen them all degraded. Nobody, nobody seems to know what truth is anymore, or goodness, or beauty. So I, I, I want, them to, I want to wake them to wake up and think, you know, heck, let's have a think. How can we, how can we think differently? And one of the you know, I, I bet you do want me to ask to give some sort of practical pieces of advice. And one of them is, <laughs> one of them is mindfulness meditation. I mean, it's no big surprise in that. And I know it's slightly overhyped, but it's incredibly useful as a first point, because the whole idea of that is to stop your left hemisphere that thinks it knows it all chattering. And to be there for the first time with the world and to let it speak to you, not always imposing your will on it. So that's a very good first step. I think we ought to practice seeing both sides of a question. So I think all children in school should be made to, to uh, make the strongest case they can for a certain point of view and then follow it by making the strongest case they can for the opposite point of view. I think that we should all learn how to mediate between people. The world would be a much kinder, wiser and more productive, interestingly, place if we didn't spend so much time infighting with one another, denigrating one another, misunderstanding one another. So those are some of the things I would love. And I'd like to see people, yes, think that it's not a bad use of time just to stop and listen to a very great or beautiful piece of music to, to reacquaint themselves with the poetry that perhaps they once liked and explore it a bit further. On my website, actually, during lockdown, I read 365 days of poetry. And they're all there on my website. So if people are interested, they can just tune in and listen to some of the poems that have meant a lot to me. But it's these sort of things, I think. And spending more time perhaps in nature, getting out of the car and actually walking and, and, and being still, simply being still, not always having to look at something, watch something, attend to something. The fragmentation of our attention is very serious because I believe attention is a moral act. It creates the world we live in. How we attend changes altogether what we find in the world. If you attend in a certain way, you will find just a heap of stuff. If you attend in another, you'll find something rich, uh, revivifying, and worth exploring. So to have your attention constantly grabbed by social media, advertising, and so on is a crime. And really, we need to switch it off and become more peaceful, be more one with nature and with ourselves.
So there you go. That's Dr. a homily. <laughs> it's a wonderful homily. And I, I, I hope people can pause for just a moment and give that some very serious thought. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, he'll be on a panel with Dr. Michael Robinson and also Dr. Todd Pringle on Wednesday, January 24th at North Dakota State University. It begins at 11 a.m. at room 230 if you want to visit in person at Minard Hall on the NDSU campus, or you can attend via Zoom. Dr. McGilchrist, your recent book is The Matter with Things, Our Brains, Our Delusions, and the Unmaking of the World. Thank you so much for joining us on Main Street. Well, thank you, Craig. It's been great. <laughs> More Main Streets ahead. Stay with us. That was Craig Blumenschein with renowned author and lecturer Dr. Ian McGilchrist. We'll learn more about Bloody Sunday events coming up at the University of Mary in Bismarck after this. Maestro Amaya and the Minot Symphony Orchestra will present an interactive program from Carnegie Hall's Vile Music Institute Link-Up. The Orchestra Rocks on Saturday, February 3rd at 3 p.m. This family concert features a variety of classic repertoire, as well as this year's young artist, Gabe Seguinai, performing Henri Vierto's Violin Concerto No. 4. Tickets and information are available online at MinotSymphony.com. And we're back on Main Street on this Tuesday. I'm Ashley Thornburg with Craig Blumenschein. Ashley, it's good to be with you, of course. Now the second half of today's show, and these are tough events, really, but the ninth annual Bloody Sunday Forum will be held January 25th through the 30th. Dr. Michael Taylor from the University of Mary is my guest. He outlines not only the history of Bloody Sunday, he takes students to Ireland almost every year, but also the schedule of the events. Here's my interview. Dr. Michael Taylor is my guest. He's a professor of education and director of Catholic Studies for the Graduate Education Program at the University of Mary. Dr. Taylor, welcome back to Main Street. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about the ninth annual Bloody Sunday Forum and the events that are happening at the University of Mary. But before we get into that, give us the history, Dr. Taylor, if you will, of what was Bloody Sunday. You bet. So when you get to know Ireland and Northern Ireland, you know that there are several Bloody Sundays, unfortunately, that have occurred over uh, several centuries of colonialism at the hand of the British government. But this particular Bloody Sunday took place in a town called Derry or Londonderry, Northern Ireland in 1972, January 30th. This is why we hold the event around this time every single year where there was a civil rights march. And these were predominantly college students from Belfast who marched all the way across the country. because And they were inspired by people like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and decided that there were significant issues that were not being addressed by the British government because they, they ran and still do run Northern Ireland. And so students and others took to the streets in civil rights demonstrations, primarily on a couple issues. One was housing and employment, and also internment, which, which is a word that means in Northern Ireland, people, mainly young males, being put in prison without trial. And this was going on extensively. The British government thought that it would be a good idea to put young people in jail, in prison, I mean, before they were radicalized as members of the Irish Republican Army or other paramilitary terrorist groups. So, so the march happened on, in 1972 on January 30th. It was a significant march, thousands of people. Their route was changed by the British government. The military was sent in, combat-ready, 
paratroopers were sent in because of uh, all the violence that was occurring prior to that. People were kind of diverted. The march was diverted. There was confusion in the British government or the British military. The paratroopers in particular opened fire on uh, people that were rioting, but also it was just so confusing that there were other people who weren't rioting that were also in the middle of, of uh, just rounds and rounds of ammunition that was spent by the British military. So 13 people died. Uh, another person died later. Dozens and dozens of people were injured. So this was a became a symbol of uh, resistance to British colonial efforts to, to keep mainly Irish-leaning folks under their thumb, and it just became a rally cry uh, for civil rights until 1998 when uh, the Good Friday Peace Agreement was signed, bringing all these rights and more to the fore. So now when you go there, and I go there on a regular basis with students, we can see that this place is really a symbol of uh, unity among denominational beliefs, much more equality and equity among peoples despite their political leanings. In terms of policing, the police service of Northern Ireland has become a symbol globally uh, for police forces like even ours and here in the United States to go and observe and see just how well it's done. So it's quite a turnaround if you do your math from 1972 to 1998 to now at 2024, just what a turnaround. A country that was literally engrossed in a civil war now is, is really, I think, a true symbol for the way in which people can flourish in a country. I'm just curious, Dr. Taylor, before we continue on, are there parallels between the Kent State shootings that happened two years prior and what happened on Bloody Sunday? Yes and no. I would say parallels would be, and I actually went, this is a fun fact, I went to Kent State for a semester, <laughs> primarily because of that, like what happened there. I mean, this was in 1984 when I went, so it was well after the Kent State situation that happened, unfortunately. But I would say the parallels were there was a lot of violence and a lot of conflict before the demonstrations. So there's parallels there. I would say that students and people in the United States probably enjoyed more rights, per se, than uh, the people in Northern Ireland. These were uh, people in Northern Ireland who had Irish nationalistic, if you will, Catholic beliefs were basically second-class citizens. I mean, they were relegated to ghettoed areas in the area. It was called the Bogside. And they were uh, rarely would they have opportunities for employment. So this was uh, something that had been going on for centuries, but I, I think just kind of came to a point of massive conflict during that time. The, the troubles arguably started in 1968, but the, the way in which those that resisted the colonial efforts of the British started to really materialize. And again, and I tell students on campus this, it started with college students. It's college students led this because of their studies in British universities, by the way. <laughs> there are studies of people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and other leaders in the world who led on civil rights issues. How do these events that will occur January 25th through the 30th at the University of Mary contribute, I guess, to a broader theme or message that the university aims to convey regarding issues such as colonial resistance or peace agreements and community service? Yeah, well, I think, and we just had this discussion in class less than an hour ago. I mean, the way in which you express your activism, if you want to call it that, I think has many ways of manifesting. 
I think some people are really intimidated by the call to like be on the streets or to sit in somewhere or to boycott or do all these things that I think a lot of kind of every everyday ordinary citizens would see as a little bit too much. But I think that's because it's maybe dramatized too much and then people can't access. But there's ways in which people can do individual things to bring that to attention. So we try to, during the Bloody Sunday Forum, highlight both ways in which you can be active and embrace some of these things, themes like peace, reconciliation, justice, social justice, Christian unity, all these type of things, little and big ways to embrace just the different ways in which people feel comfortable trying to bring equity and inclusion to all peoples. One of the events that is part of the Bloody Sunday Forum is a lecture from you, Dr. Taylor. Is this what you would like to recount in your lecture, some of the history that we've just discussed, or are there other points that you're going to emphasize? What I like to do, what I've, uh, it's, it's taken on many different forms, but the, where it's landed now is kind of a Bloody Sunday 101, just to give everybody kind of a basic understanding of what we just kind of talked about, about the history. Uh, but what I've realized over the years is um, Bloody Sunday sits like at the heart kind of, or in the middle, if you want to put it that way, of just centuries of colonial issues and oppression in Northern Ireland and in the entire island of Ireland. I mean, this is a country, and this might be reminiscent and familiar to other cultural groups. This is a country that was people that were stripped of their language, stripped of their religious beliefs, and made to believe something that was absolutely foreign to their, uh, their way of life. And it was done through a number of measures. I mean, people were ghettoized, put into um, essentially concentration camps, if you will. And I think this has just been an ongoing history. And one of the lectures that I'm also part of is to talk about two things that manifested during this resistance that are just exceptional. And I, I think while they might be recognizable to cultural groups throughout the world, I think they also hold distinction. One is hedge schools and the other is mass rocks. So hedge schools were literally almost what they sound. These were ditches and hedge areas, sometimes grass huts and other type of bog-created like huts where children were ex- sorry educated and sometimes executed, by the way, uh, along with their teachers because education was not something during the penal laws that all Irish children and people could enjoy. This is something the British government including faith expressions, is something the British government was very harsh about. So people, uh, a number of people in Ireland were educated in secret out in the very vast and desolate areas of Ireland in order, because the people valued education, but they just could not enjoy it based on their uh, background as indigenous Irish people. The other thing I think that's an expression of uh, colonial resistance is mass rocks. So mass rocks were, since... um, Catholic beliefs were outlawed in Ireland uh, by the British government, and uh, priests priests and wolves had the same bounty. Um, if you came in with a priest or a wolf on a spit, it was about a 20-pound uh, bounty for both uh, because wolves, you won't find a wolf in Ireland anymore. <laughs> priests could not practice their faith. In fact, a number of them were exiled and a number of them left the island uh, during those penal laws. So But Mass Rocks were a place that people went to, Catholic folks, other folks, by the way, believers, Christian believers, to worship. And it was done in secret. It was done remotely, just like it sounds. 
using the uh, massive rock as an altar so people could worship, you know, under the threat of, of death or imprisonment or what have you. And those were really signs of resistance. One interesting thing about mass rocks, by the way, during the COVID pandemic, people returned to the mass rocks because they couldn't obviously go to churches and they realized that pan- the pandemic was a very serious issue. So they were outside social distancing and worshiping in the way they could. So that's a phenomenon I've been studying and just feel that's kind of remarkable that people went back. So when we go to Ireland with students, we, we visit some of these places, hedge schools and mass rocks as symbols. There's so many other ways of, of resistance, uh, but these were two prominent ones that are just fascinating. We're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Michael Taylor. He's a professor of education and director of Catholic studies for the graduate education program at the University of Mary. The emerging research you just talked about, Dr. Taylor, mass rocks and hedge schools, signs of colonial resistance, really is what kicks off the events, and that's Thursday, January 25th. Yes, and we'll have, uh, so on Thursday, we've got a couple things going on, but that in particular, uh, it's called our faculty colloquium, and we try to uh, feature faculty and students if we can. I, I have a couple students that are going to join me uh, because they've, they've seen the hedge, where the hedge schools were and the mass rocks. I always want a student's perspective because I think they just have an uncanny perspective that I could never articulate from from what they have to bring. So I think it'll be a nice, well-rounded presentation on those two signs of colonial resistance um, when we have the faculty colloquium. More events follow on Thursday. And before we continue on, Dr. Taylor, this event is open to anyone, correct? Absolutely. It's definitely open to anyone. We're always um, grateful when people from the community will come. Uh, Sometimes, and we have like, for example, our convocation that comes up on Friday at 10 o'clock where we'll have State Senator Sean Cleary. Um, We try to stream things through YouTube, either recorded or live. We try to subtitle everything um, for hearing impaired and uh, and other uh, ways to make it as accessible as possible. But yes, Definitely. I mean, one of our Benedictine charisms is the community and beyond. So we definitely want the community to know that they're uh, invited to attend for sure. And if you go to our umary.edu website, you'll see um, all the events we have listed for the Bloody Sunday Forum. Including on Thursday night, beginning at 8 o'clock late night with Father Dominic. Yes. So, uh, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it's been changed now to 8:30 because we have a, a we just have a really vibrant campus scene. So uh, now it's at 8:30. So Senator Cleary will be there with uh, Father Dominic Bauk. He has this kind of like late night kind of TV showish kind of themed. We've got a live band, and he interviews really interesting people. And um, Senator uh, Cleary will be one of those in which he'll ask him questions about, you know, how Senator Cleary came to this idea of passing this resolution in commemoration of the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, essentially bringing peace to Northern Ireland. A lot of work to do yet, like all our communities have, like all our countries have, really kind of a a significant point in time in history, I think for the world in a lot of ways. Senator Cleary, I should point out, is an alum of the University of Mary. 
and he'll also be available for a conversation then on Friday. Is that correct? Still at one o'clock? Yeah, that's correct. So that's my class. That's my regular scheduled class. And what I like to do when I bring a guest on campus who speaks at the convocation in the morning at 10 o'clock on Friday is usually we invite folks to kind of continue the conversation, which spills into the lo- to the lobby area at Butler Hall. And then um, if any others are still engaged in conversation, we go to lunch. And then after lunch, we go to my classroom at one o'clock and then my regular class is there. And then anybody from the campus community, the greater community can come in. It's a little more of an informal talk with the guest because by that time on Friday, the word's out and uh, people are, their interest is peaked. And if they weren't uh, available to go to one thing, they can kind of catch up there. And it's, it's really more of an informal kind of laid back setting where you get to engage the speaker and questions. And I think uh, Senator Cleary, I'm just grateful that he agreed to come because uh, like you mentioned, he's an alum, which I didn't know. I didn't really know anything about Senator Cleary. <laughs> um, and um, when I heard about this resolution and then he was the author, I met with him and just a fascinating person and just a fascinating story as to how he came to uh, find out about this resolution and uh, and uh, in a very busy legislature, which is here in North Dakota, I mean, just 80 days every other year to pass legislation, budget, et cetera, for him to find the time to prioritize that. And I think rightly so, because um, I think one of the things inherent in the Good Friday Agreement and all the history that kind of came to that point in time of, of history in Northern Ireland, I think there are a lot of issues and our students who visit Northern Ireland find uh, that are also um, relevant here in the United States as well. Prior to your lecture then on Monday the 29th is a noon mass for Sister Claire Crockett. Can you share more information about the significance of that noon mass dedicated to Sister Claire Crockett, especially considering her connection to Northern Ireland? Yes, so it's it's a fascinating story. I wish I had a lot more time to talk about it, but like she, first of all, I became aware of Sister Claire, as a lot of people call her, um, from a student. Like a student's sole purpose to go on the trip to Ireland was to see where Sister Claire is from. And she's from Derry, Northern Ireland, or Londonderry, depending on your preference. And uh, she, her story to become a professed religious sister, uh, so her, her main goal in life was to become an actress. She wanted to be a Hollywood actress. She was very flamboyant. Very just had an uncanny eye for the camera. And uh, before she became a sister, she was in uh, some movies with bit parts and commercials. And she was also, um, I don't know any other word to use, kind of a hellion. (laughs) So so she like, uh, so when she, um, our students will meet some of her family members and one of her best friends. And as her best friend recalls the story, uh, her best friend had an appendicitis, could not go on this retreat. Claire thought, Sister Claire thought this was like a a holiday in Spain, and it was actually a religious retreat. And Claire didn't know that. So she went on the retreat and all of a sudden figured out that this wasn't going to be a time on the beach. This was going to be like a big-time retreat in a religious context. But something sparked in her soul, you know, in her psyche. She And she, right then and there, as Claire has been known to do, decided she wanted to be a nun, be a sister. So she came home from the retreat, announced to her parents that she wanted to be a sister. And after her parents kind of got up from fainting, you know, uh, she was on this road, uh, on this journey to be a sister. Um, And so she just served in all kinds of capacities in um, 
not only in Europe, but in the United States and then also in, in Central America, um, where unfortunately um, in one of the last places she served, there was an earthquake and the building toppled upon her and some students and she died. Mm. So she is now, the Catholic Church is considering her as a saint. And it's just a wonderful story. When you go there uh, to Derry, Northern Ireland, there are just two massive murals for her. There's a retreat place we stay at that has a lot of retreats for her. There's people who have um, just kind of come to belief because of her story. They're like, wow, if, if that woman could become that serious in her vocation as a religious sister, maybe there's hope for me, you know? So uh, it's just been an unbelievable story. Uh, when you visit her, the cemetery where she is in the, um, in the uh, bog side of, of Derry in Northern Ireland, there's often lines. You have to wait in line because people are just there to kind of, you know, vicariously kind of witness with her, to her, those type of things. So, in fact, I've been told that it's now the the, the leading gravesite that's visited, and there are some significant historical people that are buried in that cemetery, and, and Sister Claire is is the tops right now. So it's just an unbelievable story, and it's we've kind of made her our patroness because her her theme is all or nothing. <laughs> and that's kind of how we do the trip. We really want to engage. When we're in Northern Ireland and Ireland, we want to get what I call under the skin of the culture. We want to be as into it as possible. You can, you know, there's a there's a temptation in Ireland to be kind of just into the touristy parts of Ireland, into the kind of romanticized things of Ireland. We want to go deeper. We want to go beyond that and really get to those indigenous roots so we can really learn what Ireland really is. Because uh, often I think Ireland is misperceived by a lot of people. Dr. Taylor, we have about a minute left. You bet. Events conclude on Tuesday, January 30th. There are opportunities for volunteers to serve in Bismarck and also a movie that concludes events for the week. You bet. So uh, rounding out next week on, on Tuesday, January 30th, the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, we're going to be, we always have a service component. So we'll be at Ministry on the Margins in downtown Bismarck. Great place to serve in the morning. They have a food pantry. And we're going to take time out at 10, 10 uh, a.m. Central Time to mark the time when 52 years uh, ago was when Bloody Sunday occurred, where people unfortunately were dying uh, for the cause of civil rights. So we want to pause and take that uh, time to commemorate and be in solidarity with the people of Derry. And then later that night, we always mark it on the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, is the critically acclaimed movie Bloody Sunday, excellent movie. It's all sides agree that it's a fair account of what had happened and really encourage folks to, to uh, watch it. But just know that it's it's violent, but it's it's violent based on what really happened. Dr. Michael Taylor, he's a professor of education and director of Catholic studies for the graduate education program at the University of Mary, discussing the Bloody Sunday Forum, the ninth annual, January 25th through the 30th in Bismarck. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us on Main Street. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for January 23rd. In 1937, when Fred Morrison was 17 years old, he and his girlfriend began tossing the lid of a popcorn container to each other. Even after Fred and Lucille got married, they continued playing with the popcorn lids. Then they discovered that metal cake pans flew better and began tossing those. One day, the couple was playing with a cake pan on the beach when a stranger saw them and offered them a quarter for it. 
That got them thinking. Morrison had paid five cents for the cake pan, and the stranger bought it for a quarter. That meant it could turn into a business. He tweaked the cake pan's design and renamed it the Whirlaway. Then he called it the Flying Saucer. He finally settled on the Pluto platter. He sold it to toy manufacturer Whammo and marketed it at fairs. It was an immediate hit. Whammo changed the name of the toy to Frisbee, a nod to the popular New England pastime of tossing around pie plates from the Frisbee Pie Company. The toy company sold the first Frisbee on this date in 1957. Morrison hated the new name. He said, I thought the name was a horror. Terrible. But after the royalties began pouring in, making him a millionaire, he changed his mind. He later said he wouldn't consider changing that name he had hated. From casual play at family picnics, the Frisbee evolved into an organized sport. In 1965, George Sappenfield was playing golf when he thought that kids on playgrounds could play golf using Frisbees. A Frisbee golf tournament was the beginning of organized disc golf. The Professional Disc Golf Association started up in 1975. Disc golf has become popular in North Dakota, which is ranked as a good state for the game, with many courses across the state. And with the minimal expense for equipment, it's easily accessible for beginners. And for those who really get into it, there's the North Dakota State Championship, which was first held in 2001. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Dana DelVal. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. That's it for this Tuesday edition of Main Street. Stay tuned to Prairie Public throughout the evening for NPR's special live coverage of the New Hampshire primaries, as it is now a two-person race as Ron DeSantis has dropped out, making it a race between former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Stream or listen right here on the radio. Ashley, tomorrow on Main Street, we have a special preview of the upcoming season of Prairie Musicians. That will be hosted by our own Eric Dethridge tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, have a good rest of your day.